I'm Tristan Gruno, and this is Hokkaido 150. On this episode, I'm talking with Dr. Mark Watson, Assistant Professor in the Department of Anthropology and Sociology at Concordia University. Dr. Watson is the author of Japan's Ainu Minority in Tokyo, Diasporic Indigeneity and Urban Politics, published by Rutledge in 2016. Dr. Watson, thank you so much for talking with me today. Oh no, thanks very much. So often when we think of the Ainu, we think of the northern island of Hokkaido, but in fact there is quite a bit of Ainu diaspora out of Hokkaido into places like Tokyo. In fact, you've written this book, The Ainu Minority in Tokyo. So could you tell us a bit about this minority in Tokyo? How many people are we talking about and what's the background of how they get there? You're absolutely right. Uh, the general idea about Ainu is that they're a northern people and that Hokkaido is, is the traditional homeland. And for sure, that is true. The history of the Ainu people is very much attached to the northern regions of the Japanese archipelago. So we're not just talking about Hokkaido, but also northern Tohoku and also Sakhalin and the Kuril Islands too. But there is a significant Ainu diaspora across Japan, but mostly concentrated in big cities like Tokyo. Maybe one way to come to this question is to tell you how I came to the subject in the first place. That was back in the mid-1990s when I was on the Japan Exchange and Teaching Program, and I was doing a quick internet search uh, about the Ainu people. And Well, actually, it wasn't so quick because I was on page maybe 25 or 26 of a Google search, and what came up was a statement given by a Ainu group from Tokyo to the Indigenous Working Group in Geneva, the United Nations uh, Working Group on Indigenous Populations, as it was called at the time. And in that statement that was maybe three to four pages, it had described the situation of Ainu in and around the Tokyo region, discussed briefly the history of uh, their migration to the city, uh, efforts to self-organize, problems which Ainu face in terms of discrimination, and discrimination not just socially, but also in terms of employment. And having read this, I, I started to look into the literature and I couldn't find any other description of Ainu in the city. And so based on that statement, one thing led to another and eventually through a PhD, I, I ended up five or six years later spending two and a half to three years in Tokyo doing fieldwork with Ainu in the city. In terms of the history of Ainu migration out of Hokkaido, you can think of it in terms of the early 20th century, Ainu were moving down to the city in order to lobby the government over land reforms and other issues that, that were affecting Ainu politically. At the beginning of the 20th century, there was a strong assimilationist policy that was seeking to assimilate Ainu into the general Japanese population uh, after the full colonization of Hokkaido during the 19th century. But those efforts at, at colonization didn't preclude Ainu from seeking to gain rights based on their Ainu heritage or to seek reclamation of lands that had been taken from them during the colonization process. During the early 20th century, a small number of Ainu were mobile globally, having been moved through various networks in order to attend expositions, so-called living museums that were bringing indigenous peoples from all over the world to be the objects of touristic voyeurism in London, in the UK, uh, also in St. Louis, famously in 1904, Ainu were present. 
So Ainu were mobile, and historically, as a hunter-gatherer people, Ainu were incredibly mobile, especially because of trade routes that they had established both south and north of Hokkaido. But then come the 1950s and 1960s, as people told me uh, during fieldwork and as I found out through my research, increasingly Ainu started to move south from Hokkaido to Tokyo, but, but, but also to Osaka, Hiroshima, and, uh, and uh, Nagoya, and uh, other big cities. There were several reasons. Employment was a major reason. Obviously, Ainu migration to the city is also part of, of a general depopulation of, of rural areas during this time when many young people were moving to cities in order to find employment in the 1950s and 1960s. And like many other migrant groups, you start to find mention in newsletters that were being published in, in Tokyo of Ainu groups moving down. So it wasn't just individuals, but also, you know, small groups of Ainu moving together to and around the city. Also, Ainu were moving down for education, uh, also for, for marriage, and, you know, for many of the same reasons that others were, were moving to, you know, for a new experience. But something that was different was, and something that Ainu begin to describe, is the chance to escape difficult circumstances in Hokkaido at the time, which directly refers to issues of discrimination. And so Tokyo became a new space for Ainu. But that isn't to say it was straightforward at all, that this movement of Ainu from Hokkaido to Tokyo isn't a straightforward history of a group moving from one place to another. Because it took until, or the first effort to self-organize as Ainu in Tokyo was around the late 1960s. But the first proper group was only established in 1974. And then thereafter, other Ainu groups started to form until by the 1990s, you have kind of four quite well-established Ainu organizations in the city. And, you know, the reason why there isn't this straightforward transfer of Ainu life in the north to Ainu life in the south is that Tokyo was a big city. Uh, Individuals had, you know, a a lot of things to do and a lot of things to plan out, to find housing, accommodation, to find a job. Uh, They had friends. that people would describe how they began to question who they were in the city. I remember in uh, some newsletters, Ainu would talk about how they were impressed, how other young people from other parts of Japan were very proud of where they came from and they knew who they were. So Ainu individuals also began to think about what it was to be Ainu, but in a different location. And that, in one way or another, led to an important history of self-organization, which led in 1975 to the first uh, survey of Ainu in the city, and then a follow-up survey that was sponsored by the Tokyo Metropolitan Government in 1988. Uh, The first survey found approximately 600 Ainu in Tokyo. The second survey in 1988 found over 2,000. Surveys are notoriously difficult to provide accurate statistics. One of the main problems is is undercounting, and this is something that, that both surveys struggled with. Undercounting refers to the fact that even though people may know that that there are other Ainu in the city, uh, they may not identify as Ainu, they may not publicly wish to be identified as Ainu, and so on and so forth. So numbers are notoriously uh, difficult. When I was doing fieldwork in the early 2000s in and around Tokyo, people were already saying that there's probably about 5,000 Ainu in the city. Uh, These days, you could hear it even creep higher than that, maybe 10,000. Considering that the official population of Ainu is only around 30,000 or so, that's a significant number. 
all that to say is that the boundaries of Hokkaido do not delimit an Ainu identity. There's a strong Ainu population outside of Hokkaido who have, over the last 30 to 40 years, begun to increasingly establish their own cultural and political movements, which sometimes are in tension with the Hokkaido Ainu movement too, because being Ainu outside of Hokkaido has different issues uh, attached to it, both culturally, socially, and uh, politically. But Tokyo is an important location for Ainu life these days, and it's uh, something that hopefully will be taken into more consideration whenever people talk about the Ainu people. You mentioned some of the discrimination that the Ainu living in Tokyo face, and I'm wondering, there are other marginalized groups in Tokyo who are ostracized into certain parts of the city. And so I'm wondering if this geography of discrimination or geography of ostracism, does it overlap? I mean, are the Ainu kind of forced into these same communities? Yeah, Ainu geography in the city Maybe at one level, uh, because of the numbers involved and because of the survey numbers or the statistics that you can gather from from the two surveys, uh, the kind of numbers are so small that it's, that it's quite difficult to establish any kind of uh, demographic patterns. Uh, however, that said, from kind of oral histories and the kind of stories that I knew themselves were writing in their organization's newsletters in the 70s and 80s, you do find people talking about the fact that, that when they moved to Tokyo, many moved to Shinjuku and, and other areas in order to gain work, manual labor work in that area. But then as they began to settle, and they, uh, if they had families, then eventually they would move out into the broader uh, region. So, yeah, so there's never been any kind of Ainu village uh, in the city. However, in the 1990s, when one of the four Ainu organizations uh, established an Ainu restaurant called uh, Arara Chisei, they built that restaurant close to Nakano Station to the west of Tokyo. And that became a very important area for different Ainu activities. And also Ainu would collaborate with other groups. So on a yearly basis during the 1990s and early 2000s, for example, uh, Arara Chisei, Arara no Kai, the organization which uh, ran the a uh, restaurant would would hold events with uh, Okinawan groups uh, during the year. Once or twice I attended events with some Korean groups too. So there was that kind of horizontal uh, solidarity uh, going on. But then the last thing about Tokyo geography is that it, obviously Tokyo is such a big city and I knew events happen across the city. So it's uh, difficult to really talk about an I knew geography. You were talking about some of the discrimination Ainu living in Tokyo face. I'm wondering, is there discrimination in employment? Uh, I know some of the other ostracized groups get kind of forced into these low-skilled manual labor jobs like construction. Is the same true for the Ainu minority in Tokyo? Well, one thing to say about that is that during the 1980s, as a result of the surveys that were conducted by Ainu organizations in Tokyo, although sponsored by the Metropolitan Government, one of the outcomes of that was the posting of an employment counsellor for Ainu within the Tokyo government, which reflects the fact that Ainu did experience uh, discrimination uh, in the workforce and that this position you know, sought to address those problems. But at the same time, Ainu moving down to the city, uh, the kind of educational experiences which they might or might not have had in, in the north you know, or see push them into certain occupations. And so, yeah, for the men, construction, also work in their stables around uh, the Kanto region was also something that I knew would do. 
How about for women? Is there typical employment? Yeah, in the 1970s, you find, or in 1960s, 1970s, you find Ainu women writing about their own experiences and describing that when they first moved to Tokyo, then they were working in uh, hostess bars in in uh, Shinjuku, Shibuya, and uh, those areas. Also, sometimes I knew, you know, would describe difficulties in finding partners, or if their partners' families would find out that that there are I knew, then relationships would end, which would be very difficult, obviously, for uh, emotionally to deal with. So, for those reasons, yeah, many I knew uh, weren't comfortable in identifying publicly as I knew. In fact, one of the I knew leaders described how during that era in the 1950s and 60s, you know, she said that that the I knew would would recognize each other on the street but they'd, and they'd glance at each other, uh, but they wouldn't necessarily talk to each other. And so it was her effort to form the first organization to to allow Ainu to organize. And based on that, the first survey was conducted and and then the employment counselor was posted to begin to address the issues that Ainu were discussing. I understand now you're doing research looking at urban migration of Inuit into places like Montreal and Ottawa. And being here in Canada, we and we hear a lot about First Nations and indigeneity, and we can put these two kind of indigenous experiences in, into communication with each other. Do you see some similarities between these urban experiences of the Ainu in Tokyo and the Inuit in places like Montreal? One of the reasons why I started working with, with Inuit here in, in Montreal was because of my work in Tokyo. It was back in 2003, I think, when I was doing field work, that a professor at uh, Minpaku, the National Museum of Ethnology in, in Osaka, invited a group of Inuit from Montreal to come visit Osaka and Tokyo to meet with Tokyo Ainu as a kind of exchange in order to exchange ideas and strategies and and also to talk about their own histories of of living in a city yet coming from from elsewhere and that was an important exchange to observe and then when i came to montreal in 2006 the reverse exchange happened and so Ainu group came came to montreal and and then they were able to see things here and this kind of exchange was important for me because i began to you know to really recognize how groups in urban centers have to or look to cities elsewhere and begin to think about how other peoples are negotiating and understanding their presence in the city. I mentioned uh, self-organization, and that, that's, that's uh, an important aspect of urban indigenous life worldwide, not just politically in terms of um, forming an organization to speak to government agencies or or to other organizations, but also as a way to think about what it means to be indigenous uh, in the city and uh, how that begins to change how people think about themselves and think about the geography of indigenous territories and what it sincerely means when second, third, fourth generations begin to be born outside of traditional homelands and born and uh, grow up in uh, urban centers. So for that reason, uh, that's why in in my book, I included a a chapter on uh, diasporic indigeneity to try and thresh out some of the global issues that arise when you begin to put these two words together, urban and indigeneity. Because what the urban does provoke is or produce is is a range of very different experiences for for indigenous peoples. 
for sure they may reflect some of the issues which people in the traditional homelands may may well be experiencing, but they're also re-articulated in a different ways. The urban presents different encounters and also new possibilities and opportunities for empowerment. Yeah, and so the United Nations, you know, is making predictions that the world will very soon be, or if not is already, predominantly urban. And so as the world's population becomes more urbanized, then be, then it's also something that is changing indigenous uh, peoples too. And so for me, and as a re- reflection on the Ainu case, it's uh, interesting that not more is discussed about urbanization or indigenous urbanization, because if at some point the majority of the indigenous peoples will be living in their cities, then that surely should, should also be reflected in the kind of research that's being conducted. Hokkaido 150, hosted by Tristan Gruno at the University of British Columbia, located on the traditional, ancestral, and unceded lands of the Musqueam First Nation. For more videos and information about Hokkaido 150, visit meiji150.arts.ubc.ca slash Hokkaido 150. All music, copyright, Chikar Studios, and use courtesy of Okie Dub Ainu Band. Thank you for listening. Thank you.